James Stuart Lee, can you tell me where are we? We're in a room at the Kunst Academy. It's really quiet here, apart from the mild hum of the air conditioning unit. But despite it actually seeming to be on, it's very, very warm in here. It is indeed. Practically tropical. So if we get so I'm thinking if anybody's listening to this and you hear us arguing, it's not because that is a true reflection of our nature. No, 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 no. Nor even our relationship. It's simply because it's really hot in here. Last time we talked, it was about 27 degrees outside. However, even though it's very hot in this room outside, it's about zero degrees because it is about six months later. It is mid-November in Tromsø. We're about to lose the sunshine, and we're here in this windowless, airless box, devoid of any reference to time or the world outside. Which is perfect for a podcast. So, Ruth, how would you define failure? How would I define failure? I think failure... I think I wouldn't define failure, perhaps. I think failure is maybe too many things. Um, so I think obviously, or maybe our common perception is just the idea of not achieving, not achieving an outcome you set out for at its most basic. But I think really it's, it's quite a few different things. And I think sometimes conflating them maybe means that we can't really find what where the real problem is and therefore can't move forward so i'm just thinking of my feeling of failure because i am incapable of doing something or have have done something not as well as i would have liked or i feel like i've done something to the best of my ability and other society or other people seem to see that as not being good enough that feeling that you get i think needs to be we need a different word for something like that compared to the collapse of our economy in 2008 which one could say was or like we talk about that as a failure but it is a very different thing and i think a very different thing to say how we've mentioned Thomas Hirshhorn in maybe a couple of podcasts, how he would talk about failure. Or maybe this idea of like a failure but not a total failure is also quite useful. That you maybe have a... I don't know, maybe failure is like a, a very complex Venn diagram and you've got all these different failures and right at the center of it where everything is overlapping, there's your total failure. What is your definition of failure, James? I mean, the gut reaction, right, is that it's it's the opposite of not. Yeah, whatever not whatever not succeeding is that is what failure is. But I think, weirdly, through the course of this podcast, I've become much more. Or rather, the concept of failure has complexified for me. And I think when you say it refers to so many different things, I think you're completely right. 
Because what does it mean when you're trying in some way, if you're an artist trying to open up possibilities for what you might call with, uh, you know, those uh, with uh, finger quotes, uh, mistakes into what you're doing. Like I'm, I'm thinking about how you might want imperfections and how you might utilize, say, for example, technology to create those imperfections in what you do. So, for example, uh, I don't know, you're a musician and you're trying to record something onto, uh, uh, or you're, you're trying to get a certain effect and a certain sound and you're utilizing technology to make it somehow, quote unquote, uh, you know, imperfect. You're wanting mistakes to come in but that's not really failure in some way you're wanting to maybe push on the edges of what technology can create and achieve you're trying to will towards failure so that you can take the results and do something interesting with it and i think a lot of which then is i still think like super interesting but then talking about that as failure that's less failure but more unpredictability yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. You're, but yeah, you might push something towards failure, uh, like a machine or a technology or your own talent, knowing full well that you're pushing it towards failure and it might even fail. But what you're hoping to get in that moment is something that is unique, interesting, uh, maybe trying to trying to push something to its limits and you're not really wanting a f you're not really wanting to understand yeah like i suppose you're also succeed oh no it's just really complicated maybe i'm actually just think failure is the most it's like when something goes wrong that's it you failed yeah but i don't think i don't think it's useful to talk about it in that way either to to just be something went wrong and you failed a because i think how we talk about it is uh this external set of circumstances has resulted in this outcome or these variables have led to this outcome and we don't talk about it in that sense we say you failed or i failed so it's taking those external errors, which I mean, you've maybe manipulated, controlled, whatever, but it's this deep internalization and taking this circumstance uh, and internalizing it. And I think that's that that becomes your failure, not a failure of X, Y, and Z, or just uh, a selection of different things that didn't work as intended. Yeah, I I think when something goes wrong, or I should say when something fails, it's usually because so many things went wrong rather than it just being down to one stressor. I think two examples that immediately spring to mind, something like Chernobyl, as told through the HBO television series. All these things have to go wrong for there to be a failure at the end of it you know it has to be a faulty design of the nuclear reactor it has to be government cover-ups it has to be over ambitious uh 
technicians over ambitious superiors. It has to be the demands of the political system. All these factors come together, both both personal, economic, and political, to have a fuck up of that scale. Uh, and then the other thing that springs to mind are Adam Curtis documentaries, whereby the cliche of the Adam Curtis documentary is that somebody has a plan, and then they 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 base it on assumptions, and they base it on the fact of this very low probability event happen, not happening and then the low probability event happens and then it all crumbles and falls apart and there are I think two fantastic examples of of failure when things go wrong but then I think when you're talking at the start of this conversation you're talking about the Venn diagram of failures there's all these other failures that we have and all these words that we like to use to surround failure. We like to have interesting failures or total failure or not total failure or constructive failure. And I think they're really important for, I think, anybody trying to achieve a very a very high goal that you have to go through and push through these failures. I'm thinking particularly in the realm of art, for example. You're maybe trying to find a visual language or an aesthetic language, and you're maybe doing things, but they're not quite all coming together because you're working with a lot of techniques, you're working with a lot of concepts, uh, you're working with a lot of people who are not necessarily tuned in to what you're trying to do, or you yourself are not quite 100% sure where the thing is going to go. And I think out of that, you could maybe get an interesting failure. And I really like how one might be able to categorize different kinds of failures so that it doesn't feel so total and debilitating. Because I think it's a necessary part of life is failing. Uh, I think everything fails sooner or later. It's just how one responds and how one picks oneself up from that failure that I think in the end really, really matters. Yeah. I do think, again, having talked through these uh, different interviews and having having discussed it a lot with uh, people, I do think there's a function to that feeling of failure. As in, maybe it safeguards you against doing something again, which obviously is, um, it's important to recognize when something hasn't worked so that you don't get to that point of these bigger failures. Uh, or the, the uh, what am I trying? Like a pr- progressive failures. <laughs> um, but I think that feeling is also some, yeah, like you say, debilitating. And I think that feeling being overwhelming or p- placing far too much uh, weight in it at a social level leads 
my thinking is that it leads to more failure that uh that we give far too much place to that feeling of failure or to the idea of failure in individuals uh and i think maybe this how artists work with failure this like absorbing it into your practice and the positive failure and recognizing failure as being a way to move forward and maybe being something creative and exciting uh is something that maybe should be more embraced outside of the art world because i think like these really really big failures i think these systemic failures that are catastrophic i think a lot of them come from an un an incapacity to recognize or to vocalize the small failures so as they come up there is a culture that encourages us to deny that there is a failure even when there is so instead of being like oh this isn't working maybe we should do this there's an active attempt to cover up i'm not talking conspiratorially at a top level although maybe but just at every every rung if people are covering up their mistakes and not recognizing their mistakes or where there's an error because they'll lose out on their job or they'll get in trouble or you know uh, yeah yeah whatever you lose your contract or uh there's so many steps that discourage people recognizing failure that result in these catastrophic failures i think yeah i think what you were saying in that answer was a really unique and really engaging point you could make a very good article or a book out of that um when you were talking about how it might be better if uh, the way artists embrace failure if everybody embraces the way the artists embrace failure and i think when you were starting your answer there or uh, i don't know if it's an answer but when you were starting talking there and you were talking about the binary in a way between or maybe it's a binary maybe it's not maybe it's dialectic this idea of the of the the you know the the societal failure as opposed to the the sort of individual failure and it might be better to prevent these grander failures if everybody was more happy and more content with small failures and understanding that small failures were part of making progress and in a way embracing the concept of failure and embracing the fact that they will fail it's just a matter of it's just a matter of failing uh it's just a matter of understanding i suppose understanding the role of failure and of how it should not or does not necessarily need to uh dehabilitate you because you understand that everybody fails and if you are if you are in your hands you have a catastrophic failure in your hands it's never often just your fault when something goes catastrophically wrong there's normally a whole host of socio-economic political blah 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 factors that have resulted in someone at the end of the line having a super bad catastrophe in the context of that one person 
That seems to be an interpretation of, or that seems to be my interpretation of what you're saying. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, like if you if you recognize this uh, socially, culturally, politically, we have just a much better, um, I think, a better approach to error. Maybe I will use the term error rather than failure. Uh, where it is not seen as something that is um, revealing of someone's deepest character flaws, but exactly what it is, an error, then we can recognize when those errors occur. We can correct them. We can maybe advance because of them, because maybe actually those errors are positive, but if we're refusing to recognize that they're there, or uh, isolating them off into a corner of, of error or failure, um, then A, we're never going to be able to take the positives from them, and we're also never going to... Uh, we're maybe just going to leave them or hide them, rather than uh, yeah fix them. So I think that's how you get these huge, huge ca catastrophes like Chernobyl and like... Uh, uh, the 2008 economic crash or um, I'm trying to think other like what was your other systemic failure that you suggested I was talking about Chernobyl I was talking about a lot of the Two stories examples. from Adam Curtis documentaries yeah true yeah which uh, we, he's very much talking about systemic but I mean over time but yeah I think I think it is it's that it's recognizing that individual like small errors are not uh uh, they don't, uh, they shouldn't condemn you as being a failure of a human. Um, but also, um, yeah, that even small errors, but just all, all of these failures are a confluence of events. So they're never due to just one person. Even your small error is maybe due to, uh, whole host of other things um so i think it's maybe that we need a much more generous approach to how we treat each other <laughs> uh and ourselves but yeah because i think this that is uh uh that will help us avoid things and move be forward better uh, yeah, but uh, like I do think that that creativity in there is important as well because I think as long as you're you're constantly hiding things or ashamed of an error, you will never recognize the the potential that that has. And if we think about like evolution, it is uh, completely error based, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm not an evolutionary <laughs> biologist, so actually, I could be completely wrong. But like my general vague understanding yeah, is that on. you essentially have genetic error, and sometimes those genetic errors are really, really beneficial. Um, I think having talked a little bit about failure, and I mean, I don't know, maybe we can talk a little bit about it more. Uh, meaning, like artistic failure, because we're talking like what that means, like the idea of what you're talking about, the way artists embrace failure. Like, what can you think of an example, or what was there an example in your head when you were? when you were saying that uh no i don't really have one to mind 
actually uh <laughs> you maybe you have some but uh, like uh, i'm wanting to maybe separate out because you talked a, a little bit at the start and i think we have this book that marius introduced us to this failure book um where i think it's much more talking about artists who are deliberately seeking failure and while i think that is very interesting i don't think that's necessarily what i'm talking about yeah. i mean that's it's uh playing at the edge yeah or something so maybe there's also you have to kind of separate that off and maybe you say actually if you're seeking failure or if you're undertaking a task which you know will fail that is not failure because the way i interpret what you were saying was this idea of I suppose for one of creative tactics or something like that. I think so many people, particularly in modernity and post-modernity, these are tactics that are used all the time to try and create new avenues of uh, aesthetic or artistic expression. And that's uh, obviously the way that certain materials and certain technologies, how they have a mind of its own that we can only partially understand, let alone create, and using that as a means of making art, like I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm thinking about many, many things. I'm thinking about how one might push technology or damage technology to try and to, to, to get certain say musical results out of that technology like or pushing a unit towards a, a breaking point like trying to use that and make it uh, like unruly or something like that uh, I'm thinking about how one might use uh, what's that term they use in uh, like modernist com composition, this idea of uh, 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 fuck, what's it called when you're composing? But like it's to certain. Hold on, hold on. It's fine. I'll find the term. But you were going to say something. Maybe it's important to separate these different failures out in in regards to art practice. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not. Maybe I do think that is important to seek out failure or to see, you know, to play at that edge. And that is something that can be learned from. But I think it's maybe the, the full pantheon of failure. So it's maybe that, that will towards failure, that push, that uh, recognition that there is uh, beauty outside of perfection, that just because something should, uh, pushing something beyond or away from how it should be, pushing those conventions whether that's like a, a technological convention or uh yeah a material and enjoying and understanding the beauty and potential that that has to 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 play with the the failure inherent in in materials or technology or yeah but i'm also talking about the recognizing that you will set out to make something and it will not work out the way you want it to work out. Uh, 
and learning from that process and yeah finding the beauty in it but also just recognizing that and not allowing it to make you less more like more risk averse or uh still maintaining that experimentation and still moving forward with failure as a recognized part that will always be there in your practice mm. yeah i think you've you've kind of won me around actually and the what I was looking for actually previous was aleatory music, which comes from the Latin to roll dice, a technique of composition where one leaves a lot up to chance. But maybe these things where one leaves something up to chance or if one pushes something, say a piece of equipment towards failure, there's a kind of understanding there actually of what might come out. And that, yeah, again, is not necessarily failure like if you are link ray and you take a razor blade to a speaker to cr get distortion that is not necessarily that's pushing something to its limit or abusing something uh you know pushing something to its limits to create distortion would be i don't know the, the way the beatles got distortion on their their albums they would just you know plug the guitar straight into the mixing console and they would get uh, a distorted signal out of that it sounded really cool so that's a misuse of equipment or pushing technology to its limits or even abusing technology to get results. But if they did that and it didn't work, you just go, okay, it, it, like, no, let's, let's not use that or whatever. Or maybe it's not for this song or something like that. Um, but yeah, maybe that even is not failure. I think, I think what you're, referring to is even maybe more specific when you're talking about being comfortable with failure the way artists are comfortable with failure are not those creative tactics employed but there may be more about the finished work or if you make a work and it's not working it's still okay because you know that the point is not that everything you do is going to end up in a museum that's a completely unrealistic expectation of what of the abilities of human creativity. Uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, well, I was actually thinking about that, but then I realized, oh yeah, probably about everything Picasso's ever done will one day find itself into a museum of some sorts, but you know, ever, nevertheless, I meaning like just as a shorthand for greatness or quality or a lot of the things somebody does, is preparation or uh, a, a learning in a much bigger arc towards creating something that is great or creating something that is, you know, a real true expression of their artistic will. Yeah. Yeah. Or like maybe that there is never like anything that is a real true expression of their artistic will, but I think maybe just that happiness like them. I also don't think this is true of all artists because I think there are, there's a lot within the art system, the industry or the, we shouldn't take, talk about it as a monolith because it's multiple industries and multiple uh, ways of, of practicing art. Um, so I definitely think uh, there, there is a lot of risk aversion in the industry and uh, there's not a huge amount of failure, um, at least in particular arenas. But I think 
maybe that recognition that there's maybe not really a genius artwork or a genius artist and we're all sort of more sitting in process maybe that movement away from the idea of the perfect artwork to um practice or yeah that that everything is in process yeah that the, there's no end point i guess to that creative process so the exhibition isn't necessarily the end point that's just a uh, part of that's you on on route just like you know the end of the day is not that's not the end you're going to get up tomorrow and you're going to crack on so just because you've made an you know had one less than perfect day doesn't mean that you're failing it just means you're going to get up tomorrow and you're going to have another day you you know it just means that you've had a bad day or and I think the same with practice is that you're going to continue making art and you're going to learn from that and you're going to continue. So I think this maybe brings us to a nice point where we can maybe reflect directly on our project and see where we failed in that spirit as you were talking about one admitting their failures hmm well see i think i've been thinking about this a lot recently as i was reminded of one of my other major failures not related to this project and wondering about the how they compare but i think because like we had a lot of <laughs> a lot of failures a lot of things didn't go wrong uh didn't go right um and things i regret or would do differently uh and then just things that yeah i like i i think i think it is riddled with failure but i think overall the project is not a failure um and i think partially it is because we went into the entire project with like this uh openness to to that like obviously it's embedded within the project and yeah uh also perhaps the temper the fact that the project has been going for three or four years so you know when something didn't work you'd be like okay but on the next you know on the next one we'll do something slightly different uh mm. yeah <laughs> i like i like that way when you're talking about um it did not fail as in there were lots of failures but the project itself did not fail can you <laughs> do you, do you want me you want specifics you want like the you want the receipts for where we failed <laughs> okay maybe that's not maybe that's not necessary no i mean i'm happy to talk about the specific failures that i think we had yeah because i think i mean you've probably got your own list of things where you feel we failed but i mean i think we I mean, we just specifically failed to meet the manifesto with the car, uh, particularly with the caravan, because it was just uh, falling apart and just trying to keep it like watertight. And then also getting on site, we had to use a car. There's no way to move it otherwise. And I think yeah, there's there's things like that, like the failure to to 
together. I think there's the interesting things with the manifesto. The manifesto was kind of set up to fail. Like it was always going to be something that you could, uh, that we had to discuss and that people would try their best to meet, but not necessarily ever, like always meet. I think that's a really exciting failure where, you know, you're, you're thinking about like what happens with these absolutes. They can be really creative, but you're never going to always, uh, it's too, it's too absolute or too general. There's no nuance in it. And that's quite interesting because it reveals where we should have nuance. So I think that's like a positive failure. Um, I do think our biggest failure is where we rub up against maybe the bigger art world. I think we set off with an idea of like slow curation and slow art, uh, and wanting to, to have sort of a, a very holistic sustainability, i.e. also make sure the project was economically sustainable and sustainable in terms of energy that we're putting in that we could all sustain ourselves. Uh, and while we've done our best to pay artists as well as we could, that's not always been the case. And then particularly for us, uh, I think when, when we've had the money, we've tried to funnel it towards paying our collaborators as well as possible, but that's meant that we've not necessarily been paying ourselves very well. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I think there's been a failing for us to move, like hit up against the world, the outside world where we've, not had enough money to do what we were saying we're doing and then also not wanting to scale back because there's things that we want to do and then also that the funding model we're part of has its own deadlines it has its own logic and it doesn't want you to scale back it wants you to or maybe makes a sort of silent demands on you Silent demands. I eat to uh, produce a lot and uh, do more with less. Do more with less. As somebody exactly. told you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So when you don't get enough funding, there's an expectation that you still do the project at the same scale as before. Hmm. So while we try to fight that, or and I think multiple times thought about giving money back. Uh. We we also wanted to do everything that we'd set out to do. And so we did it for less. So I think we failed to stick to our guns in some ways. And I think like partially I'm glad for that because I, I like what we've done, but I also regret that we've not. I think that was such a core aspect when we first rewrote that first application. <laughs> and I, I think it was... Uh, I think it's been a shame that we haven't stuck to it. Or, you know. But I think it also reveals a lot about the the failures not within our project, but the failures like how those failures are always parts of these bigger confluences of things. You can't uh necessarily succeed in a system that's failing. A system that's failing. <sighs> You could maybe maybe I want your take on this rather than uh, I can I can come back to what was the question? What I was meaning? Well, what what do you think our failures were, and do you think they were 
good or bad <laughs> or like what's your reflection after the, four years of this yeah i mean i don't think we ever really figured out how to do everything like the art part is really easy meaning like here's an artist that we think would respond positively to the manifesto or they would produce something really interesting in the confines of the manifesto and they would take it seriously finding artists like that that was that was never the problem the problem for me is like we the main glaring problem that we had always was as you would say in norwegian for middling mediation like how do we produce like advertising materials that are manifesto friendly but also say for example particularly when we were working outdoors how do we produce how do we produce manifesto friendly materials the handouts flyers maps and i think we always failed with this i don't i i I think literally everything we did failed and that like literally even when we tried to do it we failed and i think we failed out of not investing enough time early enough into the process uh like literally we just didn't do the work and then Uh, yeah sorry no i'm maybe being a bit or I like, don't want to be defensive, but I think we did put a lot of work into it. It's just that the threshold for it, it was so beyond again what we had funding and time for, yeah. and uh, the yeah. energy always just went into the yeah, and it always seems works. yeah because you're having to find a solution from scratch that works that's manifesto friendly. You know that doesn't involve new materials that maybe involves source materials i mean the list goes on yeah like how much do you budget for that in your budget and you end up spending you know theoretically we could have spent 33 percent of all our budget on some projects on just getting a leaflet yeah would that have been better going to us for the money you know would that be you know to as a fee would it be better to go to the artists as a go to the artists as a like payment all those questions that to me is the most glaring uh, problem we had and i think that we at the start it became clear and I don't think we really knuckled down to uh, to deal with it. And I think the way we solved it were these stopgap things. Like, for example, it would be me often, you know, or you. You know, it would be a physical person standing there. And I think that is not ideal. Well, I don't know. Again, it's... Uh I think ideal in some ways in that it's very personable <laughs> and uh, a person can tell you a lot more than a map sometimes. Um, but no, like overall, I don't think it worked. I do think where we adapted and I think we got a lot better or areas where I think was very successful. Or again, maybe I want to avoid the word success because I think it's a... Uh, it's a term we've not even really discussed yet. Uh, but I think the we did uh, an outdoor project along the, the waterfront. So it was very diffuse. And it was a series of interventions. 
And I think the foundation, A, of them being interventions rather than, um, they were all obviously artworks, but not necessarily artworks that demanded an explanation. They sat in space and uh, disrupted it somehow or intervened. So I think their presence um, formidled itself, uh, mediated itself to some extent. There was some sort of communication that was not necessary to have like a plaque or uh yeah whatever and in fact and i think in a lot of the works instances some of them maybe would have it would still be nice to have had a plaque but i think quite a few of them having had a plaque would have undermined their function slightly um and i think how we so i think i think just having that curating interventions rather than something else was an interesting way to meet that prob problem. And I think how we address that, the, that project was that instead of having lots of paper or whatever, we had a lot of tours. So we gave tours, but we also invited in other people to do tours and they also approached them artistically. And I think that was great, actually. I think it was, I don't think we reached out to a massive new audience through it, but I think it meant that we, some of those artworks and also the, the collection as a whole became more yeah. than. Yeah. I mean, I really, yeah, I really enjoyed those tours and they were, you know, unfortunately we did this and we did that exhibition in August, uh, which, and it just rained, you know, I think it's one of those things where, okay, like you, you, if we did that in July, I think it would have been 10% better because it would have just been a little bit warmer. It wouldn't have been nine degrees. It would have been maybe like 14 degrees and maybe not raining. And I think that would have given it, given those tours just a little bit, but there's no guarantee. Of course you, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't control the weather. What song's that? You can paint a rainy break. Outcast, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Jackson. You can plan a pretty picnic. You you can plan a pretty picnic, but you can't predict the weather. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's one of those things that you just kind of have to live with making art in public space. And maybe we, we, we could have increased our probabilities by, um, by moving it to, to July and thinking of it that it would have just been, maybe those tours would have been slightly nicer, but the tours, I agree. I thought they worked really, really well, but I still think fundamentally that it, I, I, maybe it's, maybe it's my, the way I explained it to the artists, but I think a lot of the works didn't. Oh yeah. Okay. I like, I think they maybe were, I think some works were definitely like, yeah, this is an intervention where some people were trying to make works like sculptures, you know? And I think some artists were, who are very, who maybe work with public space quite a lot. They were quite happy to present work in certain ways that didn't require an explanation. Whereas I, I think that, uh, I think some works 
probably should or could have had an explanation. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I still, I still think that, that that's the that's the thing that hovers over the project for me. And I think just trying to do, I mean, the the problem is like it's actually really easy to to put on exhibitions and you know, like it's re- like it's really easy. Isn't I it? mean, like it's, it's yes a, and no. I mean. <sighs> Like, I think all the building blocks are there and foundationally, when you think about it, it's not a complicated thing. But I do think, like, I, th- I think the project with exhibition making is that you're you're never just doing one thing. Yeah. You're doing 20 yeah. things. So yeah. you've got four projects on the go and you're doing yeah. your yeah. bad job. And so I think it's more the juggling of... Uh, yeah, yeah. Juggling of stuff yeah. is always a problem. Yeah, and I think... And the lack of actual money, so you're never... <laughs> yeah, you're but never you're, 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 always, you're always being underpaid, yeah. and you're, there's never enough money, yeah. so you're always... Yeah. Everything is always stretched, and I think that's where people, you know, burn out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I think, like, yeah, foundationally, exhibition making, quite simple. Yeah, yeah, it's all the other added bullshit that gets added into it that's the... Like, as soon as you have money everything can be solved you know yeah and I think, instability yeah and i think and i think the and i think with uh what you're talking about here with the uh uh what are you talking about who knows let's just drift off into nothingness <laughs> drift it, embrace the void what was i thinking sound interlude do 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 going deeper into um, the void i think or, or maybe you were thinking about the fact that failure was built into the project or yeah yeah well that brings us maybe nicely onto part two you know or whatever or the next the next chapter we can talk about how failure was built into the project see i never thought of it like that meaning that i was never happy when things failed or, or i don't want to say failed but like didn't work i mean i wasn't like happy i mean <laughs> I, like so, some yeah. things where they you know there were interesting failures then. yeah sure yeah but, yeah uh, yeah but i think even when things are interesting failures you're still resided over a failure I, so i'm more I think, meaning like the like the failure of the manifesto was always interesting i think go on in, ter- in terms of how artists approached it and how uh where they were pushing up against it or found the you know the flaws or you know the, the fact that the manifesto is not fair if you use it uh absolutely like if if every artist in the world was bound by this manifesto it would affect some completely differently yeah you know yeah. like there's there, there's just uh yeah. yeah like like so i think that's interesting because it raises so much it it, it led to like a, a much deeper thinking about how we make art and how we think about um, these environmental problems within the context of arts. Yeah. It maybe made me more humble about manifestos and just how, uh, yeah, like they're, they're, they're actually incredibly useful for specific people in specific times and specific places. Like, I think that's undeniably true, but I think how one can apply them is, like yeah, as you say, unfair, uh, and I, I think particularly the critique we got once about uh, flying and how if you're in South America, for example, uh, so much of your money comes from like say touring Europe as a you know a dance company or whatever. You know that would mean that you couldn't function basically as an artist and 
like so much of how the creativity of the global south functions is through coming to europe to tour etc 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 so there is obviously that but also I was always happy with the manifesto sort of failing and we always knew it would, meaning that it would fail in the sense that as the thing that we always go back to, Dogma 95, like it's this thing that gets abandoned like almost immediately, as soon as it's birthed, it's, it, it outstays its welcome or it, it doesn't really, it needs to be it needs to be gotten rid of in some way. Like it, it, it's never designed to be the thing that stays around forever, guiding artistic production. And it's very nice that there might be works made in the, like the the the, the under under the manifesto, and it sort of groups together a, a certain group of concerns or a certain aesthetic, uh, like a, a certain aesthetic uh, parameters, and it allows artists or filmmakers or musicians or whatever, whatever creative field you're in, to embrace new sides and new ways of making art. So I think they're all useful in the same way that maybe an exercise is useful or something like that. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's just yeah. like an incredibly blunt tool, right? Yeah. And it, like as long as you recognize it as what it is, it's fine. It's, the problem is when, uh, if Dogma 95 were to become, you know, actually dogmatic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the critiques, yeah, like I do, the, 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 the manifesto that we have obviously comes out of very real concerns, particularly around us that are pushing back and resisting against certain trends that we mm. thought were developing, particularly around an, uh, an embrace of uh, internationalism over developing a local, the embrace of of just flying everywhere all the time, uh, thinking about just going out and buying a lot of toxic chemicals. Our manifesto was trying to push back against all those habits that we saw in a very minor way. And, and particularly from the context of Norway, which yeah. is one of the wealthiest countries and a huge yeah. polluter. Yeah. And there's always this thing, it's like, okay, if we can do this in Tromso, in the Arctic Circle, then everybody else in the world should be able to do it because, you know, we're so geographically isolated and, uh, I, yeah, I don't know, like nothing grows naturally here and everything's an absolute pain because it's covered in snow and blah, 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 blah. And there's maybe an arrogance to that as well, being like, well, if we can do it, then surely everybody else will be able to do that. But I think fundamentally... I don't think I ever thought that. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe that's, I that's that a parody within, within a Norwegian context. Uh, like that's a parody yeah. of that's a parody of us, right? Where, yeah. uh, th that we we think that other people should be able to do that, you know. Like it's a parody of our of our pretensions in a way, <laughs> and arrogance and naivety, right? Uh, that we would think that everybody should be able to do this. And I think we, and I think, uh, but I'm also very touchy about criticisms of the manifesto because of course it's not supposed to be the document. It's not supposed to be the way to make environmental art. It's, it's a way that we adopted and decided to work with kind yeah, of arbitrarily yeah. and the arbit but Yeah. But also a way to, fo like, I think for us to focus a way that environmental art is not about making art that's about the environment, but art that considers its env environmental cost. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a very a very good way to put it. Um, but also, I, I think I get quite yeah, like I do get quite touchy about criticism of the manifesto, not because it's the world's greatest written manifesto, but because precisely it wasn't like it's not supposed to be the Bible. Like it's not supposed to be I mean, the way to do it. <laughs> the Bible was probably not really meant to be the Bible, <laughs> I think, or at least well, I think some some yeah, parts of yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. the uh, the way we embraced it is that it is a very conditional document. But I think everything in it has to be taken seriously. Now, whether you actually go to that extreme, as it was in the manifesto, I mean, we don't even now go to that extreme in our lives or practices. Um, but I think everything in it should, if you're an artist, be uh, at least examined. If that makes sense, mm. like you're, like how much are you flying as part of your art practice? Um, should you be doing that? What options are? And this is not, you know, I don't include that just because I absolutely hate flying. Um, like it's uh, not flying is like metaphysically, like I literally hate the experience of being on a plane and going to an airport and sitting on a plane and going through security and flying because I think every time I'm going to die, every time there's a little bump in the air. Fucking love it. And I have to get drunk. To, like I have to spend so much money on alcohol just to like survive a plane flight. Um, but it, it's also, yeah, about like investigating what materials you're using and why you're using them. And it's become a real, in many ways, I think one of the, the, the problems of the manifesto for me in relationship to my art practice over the last three years, not only is the work of running the project fuck, not only is that actually very time consuming because we're not getting paid that much. So I'm doing it in, you know, my spare time or whatever. But more fundamentally, it's, it's also how I relate it to my art practice because my art practice is completely dependent on buying a, buying really stupid commodities like goop and Coca-Cola and nootropics and supplements and things like that. Like that was what my art practice was. And I think one of the reasons it's kind of stopped over the last like two or three years is not because of the pandemic or anything like that. Uh, and not because I've been too busy, although, you know, I am, you know, I'm very busy. I'm a very busy person, <laughs> but simply because I think I've had this paralyzing, like I've had a paralyzing experience with, with doing that while also being the guy doing fuck, even though I know, even though the, con even though I knew and know and believe that the manifesto should not be some sort of, should not be a religious text whereby one takes seriously every instance and if you break it you have to go into penance or perhaps even go to hell because you've sinned or something like that yeah at the same point in time when i look at my art practice i really enjoy what i'm doing and what i'm making and i think i'm making these quite unique and creative things and then all of a sudden this this manifesto that I completely believe in and these principles that I believe in are suddenly challenging uh, this other part of my art practice. So it, it it's a bit like Coldplay when, you know, they really love touring and, and playing to 70,000 people in, in a stadium and they love doing it all over the world, but they also <laughs> care for the environment and they don't want to, they don't want to have such a big carbon footprint. So they're, 
they're really torn, and the Coldplay don't know what to do. Chris Martin doesn't know what. Uh, what's his name? Gary Chamberlain? No, what's his name? Who what's can, the drummer? Uh, no, I don't know. Like they Who don't can know judge what to us do. If Chris Martin doesn't know the answer, exactly. If Chris Martin doesn't know the answer. How am I how supposed to know? How am I supposed to know the answer here? And I think that's it. It's. I think I've have been paralyzed in my art practice because I've been doing this other thing, and it's it's maybe made me feel guilty about using these materials and about doing these things and i started over the last couple of years sourcing clay uh, it was an idea i had like years and years and years and years ago and then when i found out there was actually clay that could be had i was like okay that's what i'm going to be i'm going to get into clay now that's my thing now you know because it's mm-hmm. manifesto friendly i dig it up from the earth i process it i have it i make it it like you know instead of making sculptures from certain products from Gwyneth Paltrow's goop line. Yeah, at the same point in time, I think conceptually the stuff I was doing with the goop stuff, there was a lot of uh, conceptual depth and I feel like I've just scratched the surface of it. I don't really know what to do now. I think, you know, that's a great failure. When we're talking about this is, you know, what's a great failure is the fact that uh, it's kind of paralyzed me out of making art in many ways or making art in certain ways at least. Good. (laughs) (laughs) no No, i mean maybe that's the that's our great uh our great uh legacy to stop me making (laughs) (laughs) just to like paralyze all the artists we've worked with into into not me when we started or i started i think that i was really interested in how we might be able to make something that might be able to scale so to make something that might be able to operate at an industrial level and be able to be implemented in many different locations and in many different places. And I think as the project went on, I realized how, how like certainly our starting point with the manifesto, like that, you know, obviously you're not going to instruct the Tate Modern to do the fuck manifesto. But as we said, it'd be a really interesting, it'd be a really interesting, like, you know, curatorial takeover or something like that if we actually tried to do it but i don't think you could like i don't think you could run it forever according to the the fuck manifesto like you would just i don't know like you'd run it you know the restaurant would run out of plates for example you know, <laughs> like it would be you know it'd be really difficult and i think like you just couldn't run out something for a prolonged time without that uh, blah 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 blah. Anyway, right? That's a different a different. Look, point the Tate Modern. You can take the ideals of the manifesto. Yes, this is this is my point. Is that you can actually start to implement a lot of the. And yes, it is a watered down version of the manifesto. But also, you know, guess what? I wrote the manifesto, and I I uh, not. It was never meant to be that taken that seriously. So, like, you know, whatever. I water it down if I want. Whatever haters. Well, actually, we wrote it, so I think. All right. Okay. Blame uh, it has to be decided to get to that. Ruth Aiken at the. This is where we have like a. What do you call it? We split into factions, and you have the yeah. progressive, and I'm I'm like the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Conservative religion. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. All right. What what is it called in in America where they have the people, legal scholars that are. Uh, 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 originalists. Yeah, the originalists and Origi- the originalists. Yeah. What are the other ones? The, the newer. Uh, oh, uh, 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 sane people. 
I don't know. It feels very weird. Of course, we're very British. So the idea of like running a country to a constitution just seems really weird to us. Yet this is the norm. The norm is to have something written down and yeah. to have a court that says no. You that's can't not. Yeah, you you can't do that. Anyway, yeah, stupid idea to have a court that man. Like, why would you like that? Should be within the realms of the pol of politics and democracy, not in legality. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, this hope of scaling up, yeah, I think you can. And I think one of the things I would do if I was making more money as an actual artist is to write some sort of environmental statement or state how I would operate within that realm. And I think it's really important that institutions operate within that realm as well uh, and thinking about what environmental impacts they're making and thinking about their carbon footprint and things like that. And one of the ironies is, of course, like just how small fry that is in the grand scheme of things, right? And that's always the problem with this is that there's always somebody bigger that's making more pollution and we have no democratic way of stopping them from... Uh, from doing so. yeah from doing so and i think this is the this is the thing with the climate climate crisis is that that for most people life is still even if we're going through chaos for most people it's still okay and i think the fear is that most people in the west but even most people probably globally right no, like people most are losing people. i mean it depends what you mean by like at what point does the percentage become like, like I'm literally meaning More over fifty percent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, like I'm literally meaning like fifty-one percent of the. You know, like it's okay. It's affecting. Yeah, it's affecting a ton of people in Pakistan, and it's affecting a ton of people in Bangladesh, and increasingly India, and increasingly random villages in Europe that get washed away or burnt down, and you know Australia and the outback and stuff, and it's coming into cities, right? Yeah. But right now, All you know, Polynesian islands. Yeah, yeah, like half of half of the states. Yeah, like Florida is going to be underwater, you know, which is really funny. Like that, that's really funny, and I think that is what politics can do now. If you're wondering, like politics can't distribute or it can't, you know, what politics is for now is to basically punish people you don't like. That is basically the way politics operates, and the only thing that politics can do, it seems today, is to just be able to like make the people you don't like suffer more. So that would be quite funny. If, like anyway, sorry. Anyway, um, we can edit that. Out. Uh, but yeah, like yeah. Or, or just up. state that J James doesn't actually want like a genocide against Floridians. I do. They're, yeah, absolutely. Andy Murray, he, he's there, the tennis player. He's in Florida. You know, and just don't trust him. Anyway. Is anyone from Dunbar? Yeah, yeah. Dunblane. Dunblane. Fuck. Yeah. Sorry, Dunbar. Um, yeah, I, th I think how this all gets scaled up or how one thinks about the like operating on an industrial level again like it's really difficult because so much of how the how we think about what art should be opening these gateways to uh opening these gateways to other worlds and when i mean other worlds i mean like parts of the world you've not come across and this idea of a cosmopolitan exchange like that seems really exciting and i don't know how to do that Unless you're shipping paintings from one place to another or shipping people for not shipping, but 
you know, flying people from one place to another. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm also kind of I'm also kind of stumped. I I don't really know. I mean, I mean, maybe what comes out of fuck is that we realize the best thing to do is to have some sort of uh, like plane tax or something like that, you know. But even then, flights are getting so expensive because of the fuel. Yeah, there's already a plane tax. Yeah, I think yeah. the the biggest problem with plane taxes or like any sort of consumer tax is always who uh, impacts most is people who are poorest and least uh, least likely to be the cause. You have rich people that can still just afford the plane tax and they just fly around the same amount. Yeah, um, I know there's talk of like flight credit systems. Yeah. Which are maybe yeah, slightly more progressive, or yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, in in yeah, Norway has been a huge benefactor of uh, fossil fuels historically. And obviously, it's not the only one. There's lots of oil-rich countries that have made massive amounts of wealth off the back of oil extraction. But Norway has and still is, even if it's not as much as they used to. Uh, so there's a lot that Norway is not... Um, it is not powerless to do something. It could use some of its wealth uh, in some sort of climate justice fund to aid countries that are being most impacted. Could stop ex extracting oil. It could stop extracting oil, and it could use the money, yeah, its wealth to help countries get off oil uh, or off fossil fuels and onto renewables. Um. Yeah, and it could do a lot more to help its own population uh, become a lot more climate friendly and lower consumption here, because Norway is a very high, a uh, populous level, a very high consuming country. But in regards to art, <laughs> and how to change the art, and like you know, I'm not in the government in Norway in terms, of, and my influence in the art world is is literally almost zero. Like in terms of how one could or one should think about like art and its its relationship, I think turning towards turning towards the local like is good in stimulating creativity and communality. Like I think that's they're all very exciting and very, very good things. Like I'm thinking of taking like the fuck manifesto is like uh would be the word uh like uh like a spiritual guide rather than a practical guide thinking about what would be in the spirit or, or a shared a shared ethos or something like that it would be about focusing on the local and you know prioritizing local artists and pro like in your exhibition programming and thinking about how you you know work with the architecture as it is use uh, abandoned or disused buildings um i think that turn is is also happening in showing art that's maybe that has been made previously not necessarily showing new new art but 
looking at showing art that's already been made. Like I think the the sculpture placement group in Scotland, a fascinating example of like what do you do with all this art that has been produced by these public or even private galleries sometimes in project spaces, small grants that the, the works artists are making, but hasn't found a buyer, hasn't found a permanent collection. What do you do with it? And I think trying to find solutions with the work that's already in existence rather than commissioning new work, I think that would be a really interesting way to approach things as well and trying to bring things out of art studios. Like a lot of artists, half their studio, semi-successful artists, half their studio who maybe don't have a big market are just filled with, are just storage, you know? Norway has an absolutely lovely, or historically had a lovely system called the um, uh, Artitech. So it was libraries had art collections that you could borrow. You could borrow artworks and have them for a few months in your home. Um, and then return them and obviously recirculate art. Uh, very much like an art for the people sort of project. And I think largely with uh, small, you know, additions, prints, wall works. Uh, I don't know so much about like your more bigger conceptual works or <laughs> sculptural works, but at least they, it, it's a beautiful idea that uh, I think was abandoned uh some, some libraries still have works but there's not any more money to maintain them or to distribute them so there's now a uh maybe a, a, a wish to conserve uh conserve them uh the works rather than necessarily allowing them out into the world which i can completely understand uh, sort of 40 years on um but all of these works that artists are making and uh like you're talking about the sculpture placement group, it's sort of this idea of like how how do you a like it it solves two problems like making art more accessible for people like art bringing art into people's everyday lives, but also uh, reusing or recirculating artworks rather than trashing them. Yeah, I think that's very much like in the spirit and I think artists don't want to trash their work like it mm. feels like such an emotional commitment to a piece of art I think there's a lot of artists that like not only is it an emotional commitment it's also like a financial equipment uh, 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 commitment it's like something you've invested yeah time and materials in but then there's also something about like the vanity of the artist like well sometimes I don't know not every artist a lot of artists like to destroy their work um, because they're so embarrassed by it or they think it's so great it should be preserved for posterity and in a museum so the two the two artistic spirits that are often belonging in the same the same artist and yet like in terms of other things that are from the manifesto that could be like operated like i think it's such an easy thing in terms of norway just thinking about like renewable energy and again that's something that I think in the short term, I mean, we speak in the, the time of the Ukraine-Russia war and the impact on energy prices. I think in the short term, this war is an absolute disaster for the climate. I think that in the long term, the hope is that at least it, it will forces. accelerate. Yeah. yeah, it accelerates the the cutting off from 
Russian cheap oil and gas, and it means that people are like, oh, okay, we have to generate our own electricity. What have we got? Oh, we've got wave power, we've got wind, we've got blah, 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 we've got solar, etc., etc. So uh, hopefully that'll allow us to, like going forward, I'm thinking this is something that can't really be done in the art world unless, you know, art, uh, you know, like, Energy consumptions in terms of buildings, okay, yeah, like you need to get your buildings renewed. But again, like who is sitting on, you know, like insulated or something like that, you know, to cut down on energy costs or energy prices. But then that's so dependent on like a political conversation happening that one, it's very difficult to say, ah, yeah, we need to renovate all the art institutions in, you know, a certain country or something like that, because that is clearly a, like that's bigger than one institution can ever dream to implement. That is a massive, uh, like, a massive political commitment. It goes without saying. It's a big project. Yeah, yeah there needs to like, be funding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not. It's not impossible. Like uh, really small changes, like insulation, new windows. It's a big deal. Uh, there's also this new technology that is being trialed called a sand battery, which is super exciting because. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe listener, you can Google it. Uh, but essentially it's using sort of big silos of sand, uh, to store energy from renewable energy, like, uh, solar or wind power. And you can hold a lot of that energy for a couple of months. And it's an exceptionally cheap, exceptionally ecologically friendly way of, um, storing energy. Um, incredibly cheap. Yeah. So the the uh, technology is advancing enough that it is possible for us to uh, have a much more local uh, forms of energy production storage. Um, for yeah, but yeah, of course, like institutions doing this. These these yeah these are political changes. However, I think a lot of what the institutions could do, and particularly if they work together, uh, it's better. But this idea of you can do more for less, that I have been told a few times, um, and that I think we all feel uh, that, that pressure in the art world, institutions could push back against it. You could, uh, Particularly, you know, the bigger the institution, the more power you have and the more capacity you have to push this uh, against this idea. Um, and you produce exactly what you have the money for. So people are getting paid properly. That maybe means you're producing two exhibitions a year rather than five. Or, uh, you have, yeah, two exhibitions and, and four events. But it means all of those are, you know, there's the money there to pay your artist and pay your staff to make sure your artists are traveling from, uh, yeah, ha have the capacity to travel by train and are being paid to do so. So they're not losing, losing money by traveling, uh, by taking four days to travel that you are, you have long enough lead in times to do proper checks and balances to make your exhibitions as eco-friendly as possible. Um, and so you're not putting pressure on your technicians to, to get an exhibition out in two days. And therefore everything is being trashed. You're taking, you know, taking walls down, taking a hammer to a wall instead of dismantling it and storing all the materials to, for reuse. Yeah. I, th I think 
there has been there has been a definitive shift in terms of thinking about those things and in terms of like even space use and what people you know like the, the, the cliche of like the ex-industrial space is an old one because it's cheap and i think most people are quite happy to see art in settings that are it's just usual to see art and you know very strange settings and i think often the stranger the setting the better you know whether it be I don't know some this like uh, unused shop or you know in a basement somewhere like that. I think art is very good at finding you know from the time of the caves. You <laughs> caves know, onward. there's something magical about going into odd spaces and experiencing art in them. There's 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 something that adds to the artwork often being in these weird spaces. So I'm I'm thinking just in terms of like the more arts led or the DIY projects, these kind of things. Um, you know, if you're outside of the institution as well and how, yeah, like it's, it's often an advantage to be in a weird rundown space rather than a really nice space, for example. Yeah. And, uh, I'm thinking also in terms of uh, the, the change in terms of, yeah, just, you know, little things like building, uh, Sorry, no, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to talk about building walls. I'm not going to talk about <laughs> walls. I'm not going to talk about walls. Um, but what do you think you have taken with Fuck or you will take forward with you from the Fuck project into either your practice as an artist or a curator? What lasting lessons or lasting impacts does it have? I think for me, what's always been the most success, successful and the most enjoyable has been working with people, like working with other people, uh, bringing more, more people on board, uh, and having other people's interests and ideas has always been like having that much more collaborative approach, I think has always been, um, incredibly exciting and joyous and i think i think those are the values we need to deal with the climate crisis or like every crisis i think is that collaborative approach i think we can be more ambitious when we work together i think it's so much more fun to work with other people i just think it's like absolutely more than the sum of its parts when you work with other people and you're not siloed on your own and i think particularly working across disciplines i think there's been a few times when we've invited people from not directly from the the visual arts and i think that's been incredibly um uh incredibly fulfilling or exciting um yeah i th i think that's the biggest thing and i think in regards to my own practice it's just um to try to think sustainably across the field to, or to try to think about that excess of like what we produce and to, to think about that in regards to, you know, image making as much as anything else, you know, that it's not, it's not just the, the objects, but what happens when we're bringing so much more, uh, yeah. Do we, do we need to produce new images? Do we need to produce new, can we, can these also be things that we recirculate and repurpose and make and you know make a new rather than? But how about for for you? No, I think as I say, like I think going forward, I think I think 
yeah, I think I think I like I want to make sure that you know I also work a bit as a technician, so I want to make sure that you know the next walls I build they're not just going up and coming down again; that they're you know temporary walls and the that can be built up again and you know taken down again and those little things that are just it might be a little bit more expensive to begin with, but in the long run, it you know is both more environmentally friendly, but also just more just easier and cheaper in the long run. Um, so that's one thing I'll take forward with me. You know, the very simple thing of just being like, yeah, we don't have to build new plasterboard walls every time you know you do an exhibition. But I, I think, I think it's really difficult to say what I'll take forward with me. I think, I think, I think it's really difficult, and I think just just thinking about like those things have already went in my brain if that makes sense everything's come out of my brain and went back in sort of processed and working through this doing this project I realized there's so many limitations and so much like just hard fucking work doing this project because yeah you're replacing you're replacing ease with your own time yeah and every convenience yeah like you're replacing like just little things about having to get a sign for a caravan we were asked to get a sign for a caravan and just having to walk down in february with some paint and go out in the freezing cold and paint a sign on a caravan you know just just uh just horrible really you know in the arctic circle just really really horrible and and i think it's this project has just been a real lesson in uh time management <laughs> or or how not to manage your time and i think having a more realistic value of your time and i think when you're young because you haven't accumulated much experience and you haven't accumulated often many skills like you don't know what you're doing and that includes time management like it's not so much a big deal you just say okay i need to put everything i have into this and you have the energy to do that but when you get older you don't have unlimited energy and you have commitments and you have responsibilities so you become much more tuned into, and you also know how much time things take, you know? So I think just having a realistic idea of what it is to undertake a project like this, but even then you still get surprised, like editing these podcasts, like I had experience editing podcasts, but just editing a podcast with somebody else is <laughs> so much more time consuming. Yeah, but also- Because you have to debate about what you're going to edit out and- you but know. I mean, these are two long, two hour long conversations, you know, like the, this still. is a very, it's a very different beast to the other podcast you did. Yeah, but still. It's not, it's not me being here that's making it. Yeah, but still, I always think I'm going to get to this point in my life where I have a, almost like, uh, like in that meme where the guy, like you see the guy's brain in his head and it gets bigger. And then essentially he's like some sort of aura or some spirit who's completely galaxy transcended. Brain. Yeah. Galaxy brain meme. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm going to be like that with all the projects I run. Like, every year I get a little bit more, I get a little <laughs> bit more galaxy brained. And by the time I'm 50, like, I'm just, I'm just completely, <laughs> I'm just pure energy. And like, I literally no know how, and I literally know how long everything will take down to the minute. And I know, like, I'll just know everything, every, everything that could possibly go wrong. And I'll just be completely on the beam and I'll just be completely zen about everything. Mm. Um, and that's a fantasy for me mm. is, is that you're able to have that level of 
uh, like management skills that you can sort of manage the project. And I do think it's just two very different sides of a, or like parts of the brain. Like when you're thinking creatively, I think it's so difficult to switch from like management brain to creative brain. Mm, yeah. And especially, like, I'll just use an anecdote that's got nothing to do with fuck, but in my day job, it's like, I suppose, like, a putting together, like, installs or something like that, managing them, producing them, or whatever you want to call it, producing exhibitions. Um, the, this, the flip in the one's brain between the, like, the time management thing and the, the sort of creative problem-solving thing, like, it's so much easier just to put somebody on a problem and say, you go fix that. You've got 20 hours. Like I know, like I have a gut feeling or not even a gut feeling. Like you kind of just have a kind of, you're in tune with the, the materials and you're in tune with a body and you know how long a thing like that should take. Um, and it's so much easier. I think when I'm planning my time just to say, okay, I put somebody on 20 hours to do this one task because I know it will get done in 18 and it gives them a little bit of cushioning time to go out for cigarette breaks, you know, and you can just carry on like thinking and putting all the logistics in place and keeping an eye on the logistics and making sure everybody else is doing what they're doing. Like you're, it's really difficult to then take yourself out of that and go into some creative problem solving brain where you're working on something very specific and very niche. And then the whole project kind of gets lost it becomes very difficult to then catch up with the whole project as you're sort of trying to use your brain and keep your brain, like your brain just can't do those two things at the same time. Or I think it's really difficult to do two things at the same time, to have logistic brain and management brain and have creative brain. I think they're two, they're two different things. And I think you have to get the best out of one's creativity, you have to manage like you have to put down parameters and frameworks for your creative brain. Like you, you have to say, okay, this is the time and this is the space and I'm going to give myself the time to be creative and I'm going to give myself the time and the conditions to make creative breakthroughs or whatever, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important. And you find that it gets much more complicated as well. Like the older I get also to, that I need longer in that creative space before, you know, you hit flow or that I can switch off that sort of more managerial or logistical side of the brain. Oh shit. I need to get tea tonight. Fuck. And you're in Norway. You're like, Oh fuck. It's Saturday. I need to go to the shop or I'm going to starve tomorrow. <laughs> going to starve. That's not even open on a Sunday. What? <laughs> what? Like that's your logistical brain breaking no, through, no, or it's like that your you logistical just, yeah. brain when you first moved to Norway. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that none of the supermarkets are open on on Sundays. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's always the problem. Actually, just that in Norway, there's just like this additional logistical thing that uh, it's just like that. It's just one step I too be- far. You can't buy beer after yeah. a certain time. Yeah, yeah, it's just one one too many things to try and stay on top of, so your brain just melts. Mm. No, I do. And I don't know if that's an age thing or just uh, that we have more logistics. I have more logistics in my life. You know, you're managing more projects and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. No, I do. I think with, with fuck, I mean, we've not really talked so much about failure. Or in a, like, this has been maybe quite a navel-gazy podcast episode. But that's that's fine. Yeah. I think that 
I hope people are happy. Yeah. But yeah, I think one of the things that I wish we'd spent more time on. So this is the thing of like stuff I take away from the project. I'm like, oh, it's more just that I've still got like I've maybe dealt with some stuff. So like I have less of a hunger to, to deal with some of these things. But I think some of the stuff that we've really, really not dealt with or like that I always wanted to talk more about or to embed more into the project you know the stuff that was i feel is really embedded is implicit within the manifesto but it's not explicit and therefore it was never really dealt with is um is the digital like are that the sort of materiality of the digital world and how that how we use it and how it impacts like it's it's impact because i think it's such an invisible thing and uh yeah i I was thinking when with the project over the last four years so much has happened globally to kind of change the foundation of the context we wrote that manifesto in has completely changed like we wrote that before the ipcc like the really big ipcc report in 2019 and the biodiversity report at the you know like it was released a month later or maybe it was the end of 2018. Regardless, we wrote the manifesto like two months before. Uh, and then these big reports came out, um, kind of just bringing more doom and gloom. And then you had the, the pandemic, this global pandemic that meant that everybody stopped flying. Like that, that just wasn't an option and everyone went online. And then we have the, um, the Ukraine war, which has had this massive, massive sort of gl- global impact on, uh, energy distribution and um and food as well so just the context which we're living in now is just so radically different to to the one we wrote that manifesto in and some of these things have like you say the the ukraine war may be having this impact on not now but the future of of our dependency on fossil fuels and our, our movement towards renewable energy but then the pandemic um, both revealed a lot about what was possible and the dangers and pitfalls of that. Like the, we were suddenly not flying anymore and, you know, pollution vanished and uh, the, you know, our global carbon footprint dropped massively um, just with some concerted effort. And a big economic impact, <laughs> to be fair. Uh, but also, we suddenly had all these digital networks that made it possible to communicate without flying. Uh, but then also recognition that these uh, these networks are, have a material foundation, like they were being really overwhelmed. Uh, those are particularly the first few months of the pandemic. Or sort of, sort of March to to June, where you had most of, uh, not mo- necessarily most of the world, but large large parts of the world in lockdown and switching to online, uh, online work, and there was uh, yeah, these these things have material foundation, and they're incredibly useful tools for us to. Um, to continue to work with and uh, communicate 
globally or across big distances and not to fly. But also we have to be very conscious or aware, and I think we need a much bigger discussion about uh, the material foundation of these things and how we use them. Particularly I'm thinking about like, again, the idea of the quantitative imagery or the, the idea of the perfect image rather than a flawed image. So that the need, do we all need a uh, 6K streaming uh, for watching something, watching just some like shit, you know, Seinfeld, I don't need to stream this in 6K. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, like there's no needs, like what, yeah, maybe there's an acceptance that we, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm falling into but Seinfeld shouldn't be streamed in 4K. I agree yeah. as much aesthetically <laughs> as it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think so much of it, the digital is premised on the idea that one day everything, or like a lot of the things, as I've pointed out, and as part of this project, is that a lot of things we use, or a lot of the big tech companies, like their energy is renewable and it comes from re renewable energy and they've built it because that's the cheapest and most reliable way to make sure all their data centers and are you know constantly yeah in, in use right uh so like in a way i've always shied away from or not shied away from but to me it's never been the big issue it's like how does one get enough renewable energy to power uh, data centers because mm -hmm. right now it's not an issue um now obviously one has to think about the effects of say uh coal tan mining or something like that or the 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 effects of what might be mining and for example on uh like the the the, the certain countries where you get like i don't know lithium or zinc or you know all these elements that are essential for certain technologies in the greening world and that obviously leaves a huge amount of environmental destruction that to me is is where i think like the real tension is but again i, I kind of feel like like there's ways to do that like we know there's ways to do that where they're not uh so polluting and so uh, awful to the environment the technology is literally there uh it's just obviously not cheap to deploy that technology often one last question which is like how how does how does your or how has your understanding of failure changed since we started fuck or even since we started doing these podcasts or even since we started doing this conversation <laughs> well it's been fucking even ages. since i started answering this uh, answering this question asking this question mm, i think it's maybe changed a lot more over the course of this podcast uh sort of interviewing people and talking about it than it has maybe over the project uh, and maybe even over the, like the last two weeks uh, mm, I don't know I think I think it's still I don't think it's changed radically I think our understanding of failure or our like obsession with success and fear of failure, I think are foundationally wrong. I think, I think it's setting us up for setting us up for failure. <laughs> I think it's uh, like a problem with us, like 
being able to just live happy lives. I mean, if we're thinking about success, only one person can win. But that does not mean that everyone is a failure. Or if it does, that is like you're setting yourself to, up to have um, a population that is like 99 percent failing, and that's a terrible situation to have. Who who wants to live in a society like that? How how can you move forward like that? Um. So I think I think we need to have a much healthier approach to failure and success. I don't think success is be all and end all or like at least I think we need a, a much broader definition of what success is and looks like and feels like. And I think failure, we need to be much less fearful of it. And I think we might need to, um, yeah, like I was saying earlier, I think I think we need to embody failure in a much better way to avoid these bigger, bigger problems, um, and also just to be much happier. Uh, so yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this series of podcasts. We will keep them up on all major streaming services as long as we have money to pay our annual fee to keep them up on all major streaming services going into the future, hmm. and hopefully one day they will be recorded and archived and some sort of advanced civilization can listen to them uh, using advanced AI of that uh, translated from English to whatever language that they speak and they'll be able to oh, garner shit. insight. We wasted so much time trying to translate this and it's fucking shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. But yeah, thank you very much and uh, we'd like to thank Nicholas Horner and the Kunstakademia in Tromso for allowing us to record the podcast in their uh, editing suite. Airless, timeless box. Yeah, the, the black box. Um, and yeah, thank you very much. I think we probably... Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Okay, bye.